It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That pretty starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it's only something to your own life. Beat it up and I've seen got no peace. The ladder puts a platter with the fear fight down. Like fire in the fire, the of the gangs, the government for hire in the combat site. But it wasn't coming in a hurry, the jury beat it down your neck. The border trap is some the ground with that low plane flying and up for overflow, but in the corner to put in a little secret devil, secret devil world in your own knees. See your heart, tell me the surrender in the river of the right. You patriotic, patriotic, plan might right, might feel it in British life. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. Yep. Uh, hey, what do you mean, yep? You're supposed to say, I'm blue. Nope, I just spilled a half a cup of coffee with cream on my computer. No oh, su- my god! No sugar. And I did hear a scream in the background. Yes. Was that it? Oh, yes. my goodness gracious. I'm very depressed. I'm sure that... I am not going to... I'm going to be low energy. Low remember energy, how, Remember no how way. Trump said, what was it? <laughs> The low, Jeb Bush was low energy. Had low energy. No. I'm going to be Jeb Bush today. No, you're going to be high energy because I'm going to get you <laughs> there. I am high energy. And ladies and gentlemen, I just want to welcome <sighs> you guys to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a time of titanic temerity in a tremulous world. I'm Joelton MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find a thousand posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. For any disaster, and this sad, forlorn thing is yes, Amy Alton, oh. also known as Nurse Amy. Oh, boo hoo hoo! I'm a certified nurse midwife <laughs> and an advanced registered nurse practitioner, and uh, the, the, the woman, hostess with the most, and the woman who owns the computer with coffee in it. <laughs> but I will say one thing: the slightest miracle of bloom. Is that somehow I flipped it upside down, wrapped quickly, and shook it, and it... It's still on. I, I have no idea how. We have a floor heater, a little space heater, that just gives out warm air. And um, I have the computer upside down, sitting on that, on the edge... Hopefully that's going to dry up the keys. I'm sure it will be fine. I oh boy, you're so Mister positive. positive. Well, I'm going to be Nurse Doom, and you can be Doctor Bloom today. Okay, Doctor Bloom, that? call me Doctor Bloom today. And you know who we are together? Oh. We are together. We're together, we are the dynamic duo. We are the courageous couple, and we're here to help you keep it together, even if things even if fall my computer. Well, and you know, like my, your poor, computer. my poor computer. Do you realize this computer was made in 2008? What this thing has been through. And you still... My poor, ancient, barely functioning... It's rickety-crickety, boy. The keys, the letters are starting to get worn off the keys. (laughs) (laughs) 
I like this computer. I don't want to change. I hate change. Well, right. <laughs> I should mention that. I like living in our same house. I like driving our same cars. We don't buy new cars every year like some people, or, or even every 10 years for the most part. Well, <laughs> however. We like the same yeah. spouses. We yes. don't want to change spouses right. ever yes. again. That's good. We have made a change, though. We are now in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Yes. Uh, where we are spending the fall, and we are... But we've owned this house for 18 years. We, we have, we've been here for comfortable here. Time. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely right. We're on uh, oh. a, a cliffhanger, top of the mountain kind of place. A lot of nice views. Uh, not a good... Uh, certainly not a survival place. Not a gardening place. Not a gardening area. place. Although I will say that garden on a cliff, across the street, you know how for 18 years there's been... Water basically coming out of the mountain across the street behind us, in front of us, I should uh-huh. say. I'm starting to think that that is a freshwater stream that's coming out of that because it's been there for 18 years. Well, it doesn't start and stop, it does increase a little bit when it rains a lot, but it's just always coming out of the ground from the side of the mountain mm-hmm. and then it flows along the driveway in front of us. Well, I'm starting to think that it's the runoff so from the washing have, machine oh, from the but house you know nearby. What? There's not always renters there. And if they had a leak in their water, uh-huh. they would have super high water bills. Uh-huh. Well, they so would have noticed be. it. Well, that's interesting. Well, we would have to... It's just a trickle, really. So the maintenance guy across the street who was digging the channel so the water doesn't flow across the street into... Our house, uh-huh. not in our house. But Onto in, our property. Yeah. And erode things. Uh, he got a test from the actual city, uh-huh. the water department, and they can test the water and see if it's actually city water or spring water. Oh, interesting. So they're going to do a test on it. Oh, I'd love to find out what that's so, like. So we might have a water in source. the end of all of this conversation to where we're trying to get is it's possible there actually could be... A freshwater spring right across the street. Well, that is pretty cool. I mean, it's not flowing like a waterfall, but over the course of a day or so, we could get probably quite a bit of water. water. Yeah. Oh, well, that is is actually pretty good news if that indeed is the case. Hey, friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with an obnoxious otter? Our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and her Samey. And listen to this. Oh. got to say it. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only. (laughs) And do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse are... Nurse Amy. <laughs> That's you. <laughs> <laughs> Nurse Doom. Yes. Strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Ah, uh, but when modern medicines get up and go has got up and went, what are you going to do when somebody gets hurt or injured? You know what you're going to do? You're going to show the world that you've got more sense than a pocket full of pickles. That's what by learning what to do for injuries and illness in times of trouble. And while you're at it, get some supplies and maybe a medical kit to go along with all that knowledge. And what better place to get it than the lovely Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never equaled <laughs> medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. They'll help you handle medical issues you'll face in any disaster designed by yours truly, an honest-to-gosh medical doctor, and hers truly, an advanced registered nurse practitioner. Gosh, just compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff, please. <laughs> the, bird, the bird said right. 
All right. Right. <laughs> right. right. See, even the bird agrees. <laughs> or just ask that anyone. Was on cue. <laughs> or just ask anyone who's ever bought one, and you'll agree. Our kits are the ones you should have in your medical storage. I, I mentioned the word otter, actually, on purpose. We actually saw some otters <gasps> in the National Park. Oh, my goodness. In the Great Smoky Mountains National so Park. They were so cute and playful. Yeah, we were along a, a stream, and uh, we found sort of a deep area where they can frolic around and we actually saw some slithery thing j- drop into the water and boom chicka boom there they are two of them they uh-huh. must be a husband and wife and we could see where they're <laughs> well maybe they maybe they're just boyfriend and girlfriend <laughs> <laughs> there was an official cer- ceremony performed mm-hmm. by mr preacher otter down the stream pastor otter right? yes uh-huh. they paid him in fish and he was very happy and they all had a nice little fish buffet afterwards. And they're all going to have a nice reception. Reception, yes. <laughs> so that was pretty cool. Yes. I mean, we haven't seen river otters. We've seen lots of black bears. Never. Yesterday we saw black bears and deer. and We saw a uh, lot of animals. A lot of turkeys. You'll see well, a lot of those things around if here. If you go to Cades Cove, that's what you have to do when you come to Gatlinburg. But you have to leave your house at 6.30 a.m. at the latest. If you're in Gatlinburg. It takes 25 miles of mountain roads to get to it. If you're leaving from Pigeon Forge, leave at 6 a.m. Because you'll get there before all of the crowds and you will see so many animals it's just really a beautiful beautiful drive all right especially this time of year where you see all the fall colors oh yeah really awesome so hey. go on october 26 yeah. <laughs> at six o'clock in the morning and had take some coffee all the world would be wonderful Hey, you know, we learn as much from you guys as you do from us, obviously, more. So stand up, <laughs> Buttercup, and reach out to the geezer and the goddess. It is easy. Here's the lovely nurse Amy to tell you how. <sighs> I'm just kidding. Come on, goddess. You can contact us by email. Well, I just looked over there, and the computer actually has not turned off. So, right, so you're fine. I, you keep saying Yay. that. I'm, I'm praying, hoping and praying that my elderly computer will survive this horrific i mean really guys the water the coffee went all over the keyboard (laughs) really bad anyway find us or email us at drbonespodcast at aol.com find us on facebook at our group survival medicine dr bones and nurse amy we have a couple of facebook pages uh doom and bloom is the one that you can follow and like you can also find us on Twitter at Prepper Show, and don't forget our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. Right, that's right, and uh, I think that we have lots of other options for you, lots of resources. You can find so many articles on our website. You can find, of course, there's our book, The Survival Medicine Handbook, now in its third edition, which, by the way, we're very proud of. It winning the 2017 Book Excellence Award oh, yeah. in medicine. So I was happy, think we might have mentioned day. that once, but maybe not in the last couple of weeks. So I do want to say that that was pretty cool. And now and we can have a little the, seal on the book that says 2017 winner. And it was the the single winner for the entire category of medical. Right. They had finalists. That's crazy. They had finalists, but we were the winner. So it is number one wow. out of hundreds of entries, apparently according to uh, what these folks say. Hey, you know, if I were you, I wouldn't take a fast car to Madagascar anytime soon (laughs) because they're dealing with an epidemic of nothing less than the plague. That is scary, scary stuff. I'll say an outbreak of plague in Madagascar began in August 2000 
17, just last August, and has expanded rapidly with about two-thirds of cases transmitted person-to-person as pneumonic plague, the most dangerous form. Yes, I just want to mention that this is 2017 that we're talking about. We're speaking right now in October, and this has just started happening two months ago. You mean you're in case somebody finds well, people a, listen a, to our podcast years from now. Remember, we've been years. doing podcasts for seven years now. So, so you're people saying people could that. listen to something and think that it was happening now. So, just, so after the apocalypse, there's going to be a roach that's accidentally going to turn on an old <laughs> CD player or DVD player <laughs> with a recording of our podcast on, and no. you at least have letting the roach know it was 2017. I, was. I I want to make a little reference of the year. So if somebody listening to this three or four years from now doesn't think that a plague just started, right. And then they could take, if they want, a fast car to Madagascar. <laughs> Hopefully it's gone. All right, well. Gone, treated, over with, not an issue anymore. Well, I'll tell you, the Very plague, soon. regardless of what year, plague is actually not uncommonly seen in the country, especially in rural areas. Uh, but the death toll is 124 so far. That's the highest in many years, and there are more than 1,200 cases. It seems that it is a epidemic forming in in the area and the thing about it is that it's not in the rural areas where it normally is it is now in the big big cities in the capital of antananana revo wow that is a long word antananana revo yep and um then they have a port uh, and their main port is toa messina toa messina wow well i mean i've never heard of either of those Wow. Uh, and uh, it's pretty cool that uh, now we learned something. We have learned something. The capital of Madagascar is an Antananarivo. And sadly, they have an outbreak of the plague. Yep. And um, the funny thing is that Madagascar had gotten the plague under control with measures they enacted in the 1950s. That include, uh, included improved housing, uh-huh. public housing. Um, I mean, <clears throat> I'm sorry, better public hygiene. I'm sorry. Uh, pesticides, uh, vaccinations, of course, antibiotics. I mean, you can treat plague with antibiotics. But these, believe it or not, have since broken down and cases have been rising in the last 20 years or so. They also have some pretty strange local customs that are in play, including a centuries-old tradition called Fama de Hanna, which is uh, sometimes called dancing with the dead, the turning of the bones, things like that. It involves exhuming the bodies of your dead ancestors, then wrapping them in fresh cloth and then dancing with the wrapped corpses, corpses before returning them to their graves. So they rewrap them. It's kind of like yeah. changing their clothes. Yes, exactly. And they go dancing. So they're actually taking them essentially to a party or a oh. festival, and they bounce around with them and dance and things like that. I actually, I actually have seen I think this on National Geographic or someplace. And and so yes, indeed, that is exactly what happens. The traditions practiced in the central region of the island nation, and that area is currently in the epidemic zone. But as you might imagine, removing infected bodies from graves, well, that sort of poses a threat. I guess it depends on how fresh that body is. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, they I mean, do it once a year. Point, they do it once a year. So That plague's got to die yep. in a dead body. How long can a plague last in a dead body is well, the question. Well, in the dirt, that's a good question. I mean, it just probably takes huh. quite a long time. It, it, so so long that if a person dies of a pneumonic plague and then is buried in a tomb that is subsequently open for this um, festival or uh-huh. uh, this tradition, 
The bacteria can indeed still be transmitted and contaminates no whoever handles the body. Whoa. And that's exactly uh, uh, what might have happened. The outburst began, uh, the outbreak began in August with the death from pneumonic plague of a 30-year-old man who had been traveling in a crowded bus mm-hmm. towards the capital city from the Central Highlands. And he originally was thought to have malaria. It soon turned into plague. And whenever you don't diagnose plague early, usually results in death. And that's what happened here. Quickly. In quickly is, is the crazy thing. I think it's yeah. 12. They could die between 12 and 24 hours after... Exposure. A, I yeah, mean, that exactly. is fast. That is fast. And he was in a crowded bus with probably about 30 other people. So they are They have trouble in which... Pinpointing. They, yeah, and pinpointing the people that were affected and making sure that they're quarantined. And, and because they haven't been able to do that, there have been all these cases that have popped up. And so by mid-October, this had become... A very big outbreak mm-hmm. and uh, bigger than anything in the last 20 years or so. And unlike uh, the usual cases that they get, which are bubonic plague, which is the basic kind, and we'll talk about those in a second, mm-hmm. uh, the, it's the pneumonic form, which is a fast moving, kill, kill you quick that's, kind of form. That's also the one that's more easily transmitted. Because we're talking about airborne. Yes, exactly. The bubonic the form, or yeah. the sneezing. And- right, right. The bubonic plague is transmitted by the fleas of rodents. And so you have to actually have a rodent in which a flea jumps off, the rodent gets onto you, bites you. Right. And that's a little more difficult than just breathing in the air of somebody who recently sneezed or coughed. Sure. Out some air droplets that have the bug in it. So that is that. Oh, by the way, the bug is indeed. Your uh, the bacterium Yersinia pestis, and the most common form of the disease that you'll find in the world today is the bubonic plague, which is the one that we talked about. Uh, usually, rats are the rodent or, that are involved. Involved, and, and symptoms of plague include coughing, chills, fever, and a painful um, set of lymph nodes that are in your armpit and your groin area, things like that. Uh, these lymph nodes become swollen and filled with pus and blood, and they're called buboes. They're really nasty-looking yes. looking things. And if the bubonic plague goes, plague goes untreated, the bacteria can spread to the lungs, causing pneumonic plague. And pneumonic plague is just an advanced form that is characterized by a severe lung infection transmitted from person to person by, as you say, airborne droplets. Coughing, sneezing. Yeah, that kind of, that kind of thing. And so... It's because of the pneumonic plague that you had all these huge death rates during the Middle Ages. And the funny thing, the thing with it is, as you said again, it goes so fast. The incubation period, the time between exposure and <clears throat> symptoms is really short, and an infected person could be dead by the next day. Exactly. If they get sick at 8 o'clock at night, I mean, of course, they're telling everybody, get in contact with your doctor if you're having all these problems. But you could literally go to bed at 8 p.m., Fine, and not wake up at eight a.m. because you just died. Right. Yeah. I, you didn't I'm, even have a chance to seek treatment, which exactly. there is treatment for this. I know you're going to talk about it. Yes. I, I, and untre- And if you don't treat it, pneumonic plague is always fatal. There are not a lot of diseases that you can actually say that about. That it's always fatal. Right. And it goes so quickly. Wow. Uh, now there is one other form that's called septicemic plague, and that's when the infection gets so bad. 
that it goes into the bloodstream and once it, uh, following a bubonic or a pneumonic plague, and that's also obviously a not very good thing to happen to you. Mm-hmm. So that is a, that's a, another form of plague that can occur. Luckily, all forms can be treated with antibiotics. If you don't detect the infection very early, though, it could easily advance too quickly to save a life. Now, the government in Madagascar is now issuing rules dictating that the bodies of plague victims cannot be buried in tombs that can be reopened. However, that's smart. I mean, local media over there are pretty much saying that people don't believe it, and uh, there are lots oh. of different instances of the bodies being exhumed covertly. Matter of fact, one lady uh, well, was it's, interviewed it's at their a, culture. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. This is what they're used to doing. They always do this. Well, that's what happened with Ebola. With Ebola, uh, one of the cultures of West Africa, uh, one of the things that you do traditions in West Africa. When somebody dies, you wash their body. Right. And so you're washing their body, not with gloves, but you're with your hands. And so these people have sweat and vomit and blood. Absolutely. And that had uh, the Ebola virus on it and it infected entire families. And, and of course, people really don't believe that it can be really that. This thing you can't see can be so dangerous. And uh, according to one person... Uh, let's see. She told the Associated Press, I will always practice the turning of the bones of my ancestors, plague or no plague. The plague is a lie, according to this well, lady. Well, until you get it. Until you and get it. And then it's not such a lie. Absolutely. Wow. Um, that is, well, you know what? You get that attitude a lot with all sorts of different folk. Now, I know a bunch of people have been actually cured. Miraculously. Yes. A pretty significant number. How many has that been? Yeah, uh, of the uh, 1,200 cases or so, uh, there have been 780 individuals that have been cured of their infection since August 1st because there is panic and everybody is going to the doctor. The hospitals are are overcrowded because they're trying to figure out who's got the plague, who doesn't have the plague. And if they can figure out who does early, as you mentioned before, giving them antibiotics will be helpful. And I think that it's good that the folks over there in Madagascar are concerned Most about it enough. Them. Except for the least. lady who said it's a lie. Yeah, until she gets sick, I <laughs> hope that she runs oh. runs to the local uh, uh, clinic. Pharmacy, doctor. Yep. Well, I'll tell you, the funny thing about this plague is that it's pneumonic plague, not bubonic, and it is in the cities, and that is really what's made this such a big issue. And then when, you, when you have... This kind of thing, not in the highlands, you know, where they're just a few people, but you have it in situations where, you know, you're dealing with it in the big city. That is a problem. Now, the good thing is that it's not a good thing. It's not a good thing for Madagascar, but it's a, the good thing is that the risk for a pandemic in which it goes all over the place is going to be very low because there's not really much traffic, uh, air traffic and things like that to high population cities in Western Europe or uh, the United States or Asia. Uh, really, most flights from Madagascar go, go to neighboring islands and maybe other places in the general region. But despite that, let's talk a tiny bit just about prevention and control measures for this um, terrible infectious disease because it could be an issue for the off-grid survival medic. Now, preventative measures include a high index of suspicion. Somebody has weird symptoms and especially swelling in their armpits or in their groin area, well, you know, you have to be concerned about it. And 
Of course, you have to try to get the group members to take precautions against getting bitten by fleas, if that's possible. And, of course, be very careful when they handle animal carcasses. You know, a dead deer could easily have fleas or a dead uh, rodent of some sort could easily have fleas. And so if you're fooling around with those carcasses, you know, you could easily have issues with that. Same thing with ticks and other things like that. Uh, the most rapid and effective method, by the way, for controlling fleas is to apply an appropriate insecticide as a dust or some low-volume spray. Uh, health workers and, you know, you medic should also avoid direct contact with infected tissues, especially the buboes, the swollen glands in the groin and armpit, uh, or any real close ex uh, exposure to patients with pneumonic plague. And you absolutely have to have gloves and masks and aprons. That is very important, people. So you've got to protect yourself. Uh, sick patients should be isolated. I have an article about how to put together an effective sick room and this is one way that you can avoid having people get infected by air droplets. These area, these sick rooms should be put together or it should be a separate tent if you're on a, at camp or if you are in a home. It should be away from common areas of, over on one side of the house. It should have good ventilation, though. You don't want to concentrate all of those uh, infected droplets floating around in the air. Uh, of course, safe burial practices, that's important, and eliminate rodents from areas where humans might contact them. Now, since we know that untreated plague is rapidly fatal, you need to diagnose it and treat it early, and you need antibiotics, oral antibiotics. If you treat it early enough, it's actually okay, and supportive therapy like good hydration. This is effective against plague if people are diagnosed in time. Plague is treatable with antibiotics such as doxycycline, uh, otherwise known as bird biotic, tetracycline, otherwise known as uh, fish cycline, mm -hmm. and ciprofloxacin, which is also known as fish floss. So these are three antibiotics that uh, you might consider having. Certainly of those three, my favorite is doxycycline in terms of tolerability and, um, and safety. So I, I, that's what I would recommend. Now, so far, the World Health Organization is not recommending any restriction on travel or trade. This makes no sense to in me. In Madagascar, it's sort of weird. This is a plague. Yeah. And it spreads so quickly. What happens if someone gets exposed, they could get on a plane, an eight or nine hour trip, be have a raging infection on the plane suddenly, which no one can get away from, and then land. And every person on the plane is exposed. I mean, this is uh, really scary. Yucka do. Remember we had the travel bans during Ebola? Sure. To try and get this under control? Yep, they tried to do a travel ban. Only only certain countries did it. I don't know. If, I don't think we did it. Yeah, it was... Um, Some countries Controversial. Yeah. And China, I think, did it too. No, I think we were... <laughs> we were not allowing people from those areas to come in here for a short period of time. I remember writing an editorial to that effect. I, 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 well, in any case, that was then. This is now. The bottom line is don't take a fast car to Madagascar anytime <laughs> soon because you're going to have trouble. True. You Although know, I do hear that it's absolutely spectacularly beautiful. Oh, yeah. They it is awesome. Amazing animals yep. and mountains. You know. Foliage and stuff beautiful like that. Beautiful forest. Place. Yes. Yes. I don't know so much about the towns, but I don't think the fall leaves are very impressive. Though. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's right on the 
near the equator or something. Yes, like that, probably yeah. a little warm. Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, there are, speaking of infectious diseases, mm-hmm. you know, there are various infectious diseases that can confront the caregiver in awkward settings, and they can affect various organs in the body, of course. You have lymph nodes uh, affected, you have lungs affected with the plague, but of course, you have other organs in your body, and one of them is the liver. Now, you might think that the liver is the largest organ that you can possibly have, but it isn't. What's the largest organ? That is your skin. skin. Yes, that is an organ, your skin. And uh, so, despite that, the liver indeed is the largest organ that resides inside your body. And it's located, if you ever wonder, it's on the right side of your abdomen, I guess just under the lowest rib, would be... Uh, a good place to look for it. Now, the liver is susceptible. That's funny. It would be a <laughs> good place to, to look for it. it. If you're wondering where it might be, you know, it'll probably <laughs> it's a good be place around to there. Start if it's yeah. not there, uh, then you probably need to contact your doctor or, or Area 51 because you might have an alien <laughs> on your hands. Or and if you find you two might of be an them, alien. Yeah. you find know, two livers that might definitely be, need to report that. That would be impressive. Yes. So. The liver is susceptible to all sorts of damage from all sorts of things, from drugs and alcohol. Well, the poor thing is constantly under attack from poisons and pesticides and breaking down medicines. And Yeah, as a matter of fact. That is a really hardworking organ. You're right. It has a lot of different functions. I think in the book I list like a dozen of them. And some of them uh, include functions like helping your body eliminate toxins, just like you said, and digest food and store energy and all sorts of stuff. Hey, no, uh, talking from the peanut gallery there, bird, bird is making a racket. Well, anyhow, viruses also can cause big issues with the liver and the inflammation that they cause is a condition known as hepatitis. So, Hepatic refers to anything related to the liver, and itis refers to inflammation. So, inflammation of the liver, hepatitis. Uh, There are various types of hepatitis. They're listed as A, B, and C, which is what I learned about in medical school many years ago. But there's also D and E now, and each of these has its own characteristics. Uh, Some are related to poor hygiene. Others are from poorly prepared food or contaminated water. And some are even transmitted sexually. And all of these cause liver dysfunction and scarring. Now, when your liver starts dysfunction, malfunctioning, symptoms can range from not much, uh, but they could also become very life-threatening. They include a number of different things. By the way, you're also contagious from most of these types of hepatitis. But some of the symptoms that you might see would be loss of appetite, uh, nausea and vomiting, uh, diarrhea, uh, fever, uh, dark-colored urine, and pale gray bowel movements. That—that um, that is sort of a funny thing that it does to your bowel movements. It actually changes them so they're a grayish, almost grayish-white in color. Uh, but it changes the color of the urine so that it's a sort of a dark brown. You can get stomach pain. It causes you to be itchy. And you get these muscle aches and joint aches and fatigue and a general ill feeling uh, that we call malaise. But you can have one or more of these symptoms. You can have an entire subset. You can have all of these symptoms. Everyone's a little different. But the hallmark of hepatitis is something else. And that is something called jaundice. And jaundice is a yellowing of the skin and eyes 
that occurs as a result of an excess of a certain substance in your body called bilirubin. And bilirubin is uh, formed by the breakdown of old red blood cells in the liver. Normally, a healthy liver eliminates bilirubin as part of the process of sort of detoxifying you from having these old red blood cells, dead red blood cells are dying in your system. So if the liver cannot do that because it's inflamed or you have damage to it, you accumulate this bilirubin, and when you accumulate this bilirubin, your skin and your eyes turn yellow. Let's talk about some of the different types of hepatitis. Uh, Hepatitis A virus, very well known, is caused by what we call oral fecal contamination. That means that it can be gotten by, let's say, drinking water that has particles of the bowel movements of infected individuals. And by drinking that, you well, you are going essentially from the feces of one person and into your body orally. And that's pretty terrible. It starts off as a flu-like syndrome and then quickly manifests many of the symptoms that I just mentioned a couple of minutes ago. Uh, it takes about two to six weeks for it to show up after being exposed. Uh, and you can also be exposed to it, by the way, sexually. It depends on what kind of sexual practices you have. Now, in survival, failing to purify water properly, that can cause an epidi- epidemic of hepatitis A. In normal times, it can happen too, though. A, let's say a restaurant employee who doesn't wash his hands after using the bathroom can pass the disease along to customers. Oh, I'm so that's why you, out. Right, well, oh, that's why God. you see that sign oh, no, I know. in restaurant bathrooms. I know. Don't you want to just wash your hands. grab the hair of anyone who walks straight out of the bathroom without walk, washing their hands? That's absolutely right, guys. I saw some lady when we were over in Kate's Cove at the bathroom. She came straight out of the toilet and walked out. I was like... Oh, my God, that's so gross. Uh, I don't care what you do in the bathroom. When you're in the bathroom, before you leave, you need to wash your hands. I don't care if you're just brushing your hair. You've touched surfaces in there. That's right. And by just the way. Brush, just wash your hands. It's just the safest thing to do. And so what should you do if the door has, to get out has exactly. a handle? If it has a handle, that well, means even if you wash your hands, you're going to recontaminate I, yourself. What we have always done is use a paper towel. The same paper towels that you just dried your hands, so you don't have to go get a brand new one. The ones that dried your hands are fine. Just instead of throwing them away immediately, open the door. Now, the problem is a lot of these bathrooms are now trying to save our planet by just having the dryers. So Those aren't any good for that. What you have to do at that point is think about it. When you walk out of the bathroom, you need to get a wad of toilet paper. Put that off to the side. Wash your hands. You can still use the dryer, but then pick up that toilet paper from a surface that hasn't touched anything and then use that toilet paper to open the door. So you can put the toilet paper off to the side until you finish, like I said, washing and drying your hands, but then open the door. Hopefully the door pushes outwards. And then, guess what? Don't use the palm of your hand. Use the side of your arm, your shoulder, Mm -hmm. your elbow, your upper arm. Your lower arm, anything that doesn't allow the palm of your hand, your fingers to touch the surface of the door in any way. Your foot, I've opened doors with my hip, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yes. any, anything that's not your hand. You know, I think that what the advice you just gave is super, super important because there are all sorts of viral particles that can last for hours on a 
uh, bathroom door handle. Yes. So for goodness sake, listen to what Amy said. I think you should rewind this and listen We've to her We've all strategy. seen people open, uh, leave bathrooms without washing their hands. So you know that those doors are nasty going out. Well, let me tell you more about hepatitis A. Hepatitis A, the funny thing about it is that if you're a kid and get mm-hmm. hepatitis A, you almost never have symptoms. <clears throat> it's almost always asymptomatic. So, so but adults, your if you're young an adult, liver right, is right, somehow more can t- process it tolerable pretty well. Ninety <laughs> percent of kids don't get symptoms. Eighty percent of adults do, mm-hmm. however, and so that is a pretty amazing thing. Hepatitis A does get better without treatment after a few weeks, but those few weeks are going to be miserable, miserable. with all of the symptoms that I mentioned. You feel nauseous you feel you feel ill you you don't have energy to do anything and you oftentimes have this low-grade fever that just won't go away you don't feel like eating it is uh, it's a mess so it's important to prevent it we're going to tell you how to do that once we talk about the other types well hepatitis b is the other one that's very well known and uh, hepatitis b is spread by exposure to infected blood particles or uh certain fluids like uh men's uh, uh, sexual fluid and vaginal fluids in women, uh, and the symptoms are usually not much different from hepatitis A. Hepatitis B, however, is not self-limited like hepatitis A is. It doesn't just go away and, and that's it. Hepatitis B can cause scarring in the liver that leads to a chronic condition known as cirrhosis. Cirrhosis of the liver, and in cirrhosis, the functioning cells of the liver are replaced by these non-functioning nodules. And these nodules don't do anything to perform the functions of a live liver, essentially essentially like having part of the liver be dead. Uh, cirrhosis is also, by the way, caused by long-term alcohol or drug abuse. If you are a long-term alcoholic, you may develop that. And in, in those folks, you not only do you see Things like jaundice, the yellowing of the skin and eyes that occurs as a result of liver malfunction, but it can also lead to something called ascites. Now, ascites is an accumulation of fluid in your belly that causes the abdomen to swell out like you're pregnant, even if you're a guy, Uh, and it also causes things like uh, swollen legs, a lot of other symptoms. Once you get to that point, you have probably very little functioning liver tissue left. Now, hepatitis C, we've heard uh, a lot about that lately because they have now a vaccine for this stuff. Uh, hepatitis C it can cause either an acute or a chronic infection. It's seen most often in older folks. Uh, interestingly enough, more between people born uh, in the years 1945 to 1965, oh, no. which is sort of interesting. We're and, there. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, it might be related to... Uh, Intravenous drug use or transfusions nope, could nope. be related to un- unsafe. <laughs> it could be passed. It could have been passed sexually many years ago. Who knows? The bottom line is you don't have any symptoms whatsoever. But despite in most cases, but in spite of that, the liver becomes damaged over time and can become uh, cirrhotic or have cirrhosis, and sometimes leads to complete liver failure. And if you uh, look at TV, you'll see. Uh, a lot of commercials for a vaccine now it's now active, actively being promoted by the government that might prevent infected individuals from future damage. So make your own decisions about that. Uh, hepatitis D 
hepatitis D virus, which I didn't learn about in medical school. They didn't have that back then or didn't know about it. It's unusual because it seems to only occur with those who have an active hepatitis B infection. So you can actually have... It's concurrent. You have two infections at the same time. With different hepatitis viruses. And these cause like some major super infection. and can be very, very dangerous. It could be life-threatening. And so, but it's only seen with people that have an active hepatitis B infection going on at the time. Now, hepatitis E, that's typically an acute infection. It's very commonly seen in... uh, um, Commonly seen in people that eat wild game uh, or eat very poorly cooked food, especially pork, uh, it acts like hepatitis A in that it goes away after a period of time, after several weeks without treatment, um, and it might be spread by oral fecal contamination as well. This must be poorly cooked. Yes. Poorly cooked wild game. Yes. Things that aren't commercially available in the grocery store. Right. So they probably. So hunters, when you go out there, I have no problem with you eating your food. Just thoroughly cook it, just to be sure. But I don't think that they actually found this as a result of any American hunters or anything. They probably found it in Africa or someplace where okay, they good. don't have a means to cook food thoroughly as well. Well, like, again, this was part of Ebola. Right, was Ebola. them cooking their their bat meat. Right, they they hunted bats. And they cooked them over 55-gallon drums, oil drums, and not very they well. probably didn't cook them all the way through right. or ate certain areas that were not completely cooked. So this is probably something very similar. You're probably seeing sure. mostly in um, uh, countries that are underdeveloped, but it could happen here if you do the wrong thing. Now, to let's talk a little bit about prevention and treatment of hepatitis. Honestly, in a survival setting, other than making the patient comfortable... There's not much that you can do in an austere situation regarding hepatitis. The drugs used for the condition are immune drugs or antiviral drugs that are simply just not available in any other form and certainly not available to obtain in quantity. It is a big issue. However, you can practice good preventive medicine by encouraging uh, certain policies. And so one of these, of course, is washing hands as Amy said, after using the bathroom and before preparing food, uh, you want to wash your dishes with with soap and hot water so you don't have contamination from poorly prepared food. Um, Avoid eating or drinking anything that may not be properly cooked or water that's not properly filtered. Make sure children don't put objects in their mouth. That is probably a a reason why kids could get it. Um, Some natural substances may encourage good liver health and could be used by us in an off-grid setting. They were used in the past by our ancestors to treat those with hepatitis. Uh, They changed diet to avoid, let's say, fatty food, alcohol, of course, alcohol. Um, Zinc supplements may help. Being very well hydrated may help Mm -hmm. uh, people who have this condition. Uh, Now, there's little hard scientific data proving their effectiveness, but a lot of uh, the natural herbs that may be helpful include milk thistle. That is a very well-known, quote, liver herb. Detoxifant. Yes. Detoxicant. <laughs> milk thistle. I'm not exactly sure what category they put it in, but I actually do have it at home. Oh, good. Milk thistle. Yeah. Yes, I've seen it. As a matter yeah. Of uh, let's see. They also have artichoke, uh, dandelion, which is calendula, right? Mm-hmm. Or calendula. Calendula? Calendula. calendula. Okay. Tur- I always say it wrong. 
turmeric. Yeah, I mean, you never know why. You never know why. Uh, but you know, Oregon, Oregon, certain, right? tomato, yeah. tomato. Right. <laughs> potato, potato. No. Potato, that, potato. No, That's just part of a song, <laughs> I think. Yeah. Uh, let's see what else. Licorice. Um, we'll do teas made from red clover, green tea. These things are commonly thought of as being. Uh, useful or at least were thought of by your ancestors as being useful for inflammation of the liver. And so, you know, in times of trouble, you may wind up having to deal with exactly that type of situation. So there you go. Now you know what to use, even if you don't have the fancy antiviral drugs or immune drugs that they have these days. Listen, we're going to have to do whatever we can to stay as healthy as possible. You are absolutely right with regards to that. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Let's talk about. Um, I want to talk about pain medications. We haven't talked about that for a while. Uh, now, of course, old cranky geezers like myself. I mean, <laughs> I, I think it's charming personally, but not not a lot of other people. Not a lot of other people do. You're only crankies on Tuesdays and Fridays and every other Sunday. I'm, no, only, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm only cranky twice in a week, and that's a week, uh, day and night. Day. And night. So. <laughs> Anyhow, yes, my so love. folks like us often complain about our various aches and pains, and it stands to reason that uh, issues associated with discomfort have got to be multiplied by having to do a lot more work oh, in yeah. survival settings. I mean, you know, if you want to know sounds what awful. that's like. It sounds awful is what it sounds like. Right. Fill, this is what you should do. You should fill two, gallon, two a Home Depot five-gallon buckets full of water. Yes. And then... Carry it from wherever the local water source would be for your home uh-huh. or your retreat and back and forth no. several times and you'll see what we mean. You you and I were talking yesterday when we were over in Cades Cove because they have a lot of those primitive cabins uh-huh. about how did these people function. I mean, unless you had a huge group of kids to help out and then what happens is the kids would go away and then... The, the poor older people, the parents, were not always yeah. surrounded by a big group of people anymore. Right, also, well, now they're older, right. and they're left to do a lot of this stuff on their own. And and not just that. I mean, sometimes the kids didn't grow up and go away. They just went away. They just died. Yeah. At, it, before the age of five, yeah, probably, very sad. probably one in five kids probably would die uh, before the age of five. So it's a pretty terrible difficult situation and uh, i don't know how well i would do with it and certainly that's why you should be very close to your water source even just doing laundry think about it oh yeah the steps just do and and now we just throw it in a washing machine and then in a dryer and then we complain about having to fold something or hang it up won't be a lot of laundry being done most likely in times of trouble but yeah i'll wash my jeans once a month well there you go (laughs) there you go so anyhow, so as you can imagine, pain from uh, sprains all and strains stuff, and yeah. all this stuff Everything. is going to be part and parcel of any long-term survival situation. So people who haven't considered pain issues are going to be poorly prepared to deal with them. And it's a good idea to get a good working knowledge of the actions and uses of various pain medicines. Pain is usually pretty variable. It can be sharp, it can be dull, it can be throbbing, numb, numbing type of pain. Similar injuries may cause various levels of pain from individual to individual, and pain may be a sign of something else going on that could be serious or maybe just the result of overexertion. You just don't know. 
Uh, if we characterize pain by the type of damage caused, we can group it into two or three categories maybe. Pain is most commonly caused by tissue damage, which is what we call nociceptive pain. And the damage may be due to trauma or maybe due to disease, such as tissue destruction uh, from cancer or things like that. Well, even certain medical treatments such as radiation can cause tissue damage that can lead to pain. And so this type of pain is often described as sharp, stabbing, aching, or worsens with movement. In other words, somebody who says, it only hurts when I laugh, they're dealing with nociceptive pain. Now, another kind of category of pain is nerve damage pain, neuropathic pain, and that's uh, nerves that transmit pain signals from the damaged area to the brain. And so in damaged nerves, the sensation you feel may be very different from what you would expect. And we call that a paresthesia. And that would be, let's say, uh, burning. You feel a burning sensation when you touch something very cold. That is a type of paresthesia. Pins and needles, that would be another another type. Uh, you might even feel pain in a, in a limb that was amputated. We've, you've heard a lot of people feel they have, have a ghost limb there, a ghost extremity there. So, so that's something that's neuropathic pain. And this kind of pain is more likely to be sort of chronic than the sharp stabbing pain of nociceptive type, uh, type pain da tissue damage. So, so prickling, pins and needles, electric shock type sensations, that is neuropathic pain. Now the third type of pain is indeed psychogenic pain or pain that is, quote, all in the mind. Now, although fear, depression, anxiety, and other emotions may play a part, in someone's pain, there is most often some physical origin. Do not assume that people only that that have something that may appear to be psychogenic or or not of a physical origin. Truthfully, it's tempting to say that that's you know can't be the case. Can't be anything physical. It's all in your mind. The truth is, do not ever dismiss a group member's complaints of pain. Yeah. Without fully evaluating them, you need to do a physical exam. Do not, do not ignore people who are who are, are suffering, even if you are doubtful as to the origin of their suffering. Uh, pain relief, we call that analgesia, and as pain is variable, a lot of different types of drugs available that have different mechanisms of action, and so we're going to be talking about them. Next week, we'll talk about the individual drugs, but I'm going to talk about just very quickly the categories of drugs. There are um, <clears throat> drugs that are classified in schedules. Most drugs are classified in a schedule by the U.S. government. And the lower the number of the schedule, it goes schedule 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and the more restricted the substance. And so these, I just want to tell you why things are categorized in a certain uh, drug schedule. Uh, they, uh, they basically relate to the tendency to cause addiction, have uh, side effects, or, at, or to have no legal medical use. And besides the risk of addiction, for example, uh, narcotics have a strong sedative effect as well as an anesthetic effect, uh, analgesic effect. They've got to be used with extreme caution because they can kill you, if you're, especially if you're driving a vehicle or doing manual work. So the categories, and that's the last thing I'll do today, is schedule uh, schedule one so a schedule one drug is illegal to possess because they have no accepted medical use a high abuse potential illegal and, and they not are, legal right, illegal illegal <laughs> illegal they, let's they, just be clear with that word right and they are clearly unsafe and one of the examples is heroin so heroin is a, ske a schedule one 
drug. No actually, reason to have it. That's right. Uh, schedule two drugs. These drugs have a high potential for abuse and dependence, but they do have an accepted medical use, although the p- addictive potential is high. And so this would include opioids, or barbiturates, most opioids and barbiturates, uh, the common post-operative pain medicine. Uh, Demerol, for example, falls into this category. So, you know, it does have an accepted medical use, post, post-operative pain, but it has a high a, a, a potential for addiction and for abuse then there's schedule three drugs these have a lower potential for abuse than drugs in the first two categories they do have accepted medical uses but they do have a mild to moderate addictive potential and uh, these drugs include a lot of steroids uh, some codeine based drugs things like that these qualify to be included here schedule four drugs they have a lower abuse potential still in schedule three they have accepted medical uses they have less potential for addiction and this includes a lot of sedatives that uh, maybe Xanax might be considered a Schedule Four drug, and uh, which is a common anti-anxiety agent. Schedule Five drugs have a low abuse potential. They have accepted medical uses, little potential for addiction. So this consists primarily of preparations that contain limited quantities of narcotic or stimulant for cough or diarrhea or pain. So let's say Lamotil, which is a common anti-diarrheal medicine, that would be a classic example. So these are some of the types of drugs that you will see in, or types of schedules that you'll see, and we're going to talk about various drugs and natural substances that are used for pain relief in our next show. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Survival Medicine Hour with Joe and Amy Alton. We will be back next week. Say goodbye, everybody. Bye! You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.